I said earlier in my prayer that today is the is the first Sunday in Advent. It's one of my favorite times of the year. It's so unique. The some most of you may know this. Some of you, if you didn't grow up in a church that recognized different seasons of the church year, may not have any idea what Advent is. Advent, the word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or appearing. Um, and so you might think that Advent are these weeks leading up to Christmas that when, in which we celebrate the first Advent of Jesus, the first coming, the first appearing of, of Jesus on the scene. And it is leading up to a remembrance and a celebration of the first coming of Christ. But the season of Advent leading up to that is actually traditionally focused on the fact that this one who once came is coming again. It's focused on his, his second Advent that we're still waiting on. And so you've, you've got this season uh, where, where the focus is entirely on, hey, Christ is coming again, Christ is coming again, uh, leading up to this uh, remembrance of his first coming. And I, just to share with you, it's not going to be on the screen, but just I was reminded of something I read last year, read a book on Advent, and a beautiful passage about the significance of the fact that it runs in that way, that we think about his second coming leading up to his first coming. And it says, does Advent run backwards? The movement is from the second coming to the first coming. It doesn't seem to make sense. The season begins with the last things and ends with the nativity in Bethlehem. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Not really. The rhythm of the church's seasons turns out in this as in so many other ways to be theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the, ba the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this, the eternal judge, very God of very God, creator of the worlds, the Alpha and the Omega, has become that little baby. That's awesome. I wanted to read that to you. Um, so today's the first day of that season. Acts chapter 12. Um, we're continuing our look at this, at Luke's historical account of the early church, the church in the years and the decades following immediately after the, the death, burial, descent, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Uh, it covers about the, the next 30 years of the church after the, after the stories and events of the Gospels. And he's, he's recounted for us already the events of Pentecost, the coming of the, the Spirit in fullness upon the believers. We have seen since that, that, that chapter the explosive expansion and growth of the church from, as Acts 1.8 said, from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria, and then beginning in chapter 10 with Peter going to Cornelius, the, the, uh, the gospel going to the Gentiles, or as it said in 1.8, to the end of the earth. We've also seen in the midst of that explosive and expansion uh, of the church and of the gospel, uh, in the midst of seeing hundreds and, and thousands repent of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've also seen the forces of darkness work against it. Clearly, 
working against the disciples and, and the other believers. They've been plagued by persecution, having to flee their homes, having to flee their towns, some even being put to death and dying for their faith, namely Stephen. We're going to see more of that in chapter 12. When we come to chapter 12, the focus right now is still on Peter. Um, that's going to change with the next chapter where the focus is going to turn to Paul and his companions and his missionary journeys. But for now, it's still highlighting the, the, the ministry of Peter and, and the work that the Lord was doing through him. Uh, this, this final spotlight on Peter's ministry, though, the focus really isn't on Peter per se. It really centers on, on the Lord and, and the work that he was accomplishing and one person in particular who was trying to oppose it and trying to put a stop to it. Did everything in his power to stop it. And so as we think through this chapter, we're going to read it in a minute, I, I think we'll see why from this chapter, I want us to think about the folly, the folly of fighting with God. The folly of fighting with God. To put what we're about to read, to put it in a larger context, because it is just an isolated event, but to see that it is an event that's, even though it's unique, and it happened just this one time, and it's unique because the main guy, uh, the main, main perpetrator of the evil dies in it, even though this is a unique event, it is at the same time a unique instance of a larger story that's been going on through, since the Garden of Eden. And we all know what happened there. Um, it was there that, that God created man in his own image to be his image bearers, those image bearers who inexplicably fell into sin and into rebellion against their creator, against their Lord. And when they fell into sin and fell into rebellion, uh, it, it changed them on the inside. It destroyed the purity of human nature for them and for all who would come after them. And from that day forward, in Genesis 3, because of their sin and rebellion, there would be a separation between God and man, a separation of at least two different sorts. Um, at one level, there's a, a legal separation from that point on between God and those whom He has created in His own image. A legal separation. Sin brought upon us justly the condemnation, the legal condemnation of a holy God. Sin is the, sin is the breaking of God's law and commandment. Breaking it by either doing what it says not to do or by failing to do what it commands us to do. And so we're once broken, we're legally separated. That's why um, salvation language in Scripture is not only talked about as um, reconciliation between um, two parties, but forgiveness, right? But at another level, it's not just legal separation between us. There's a spiritual separation between us and, and God. What does that mean? Well, like I said, our sin and rebellion, beginning with Adam and Eve, changed us on the inside in the sense that by our very nature now, we sin and we're not sorry for it. Or at least not immediately. And even when we are sorry for it, we're usually not sorry for the sin, but for the consequences. We, we sin and enjoy it. We sin again because we enjoyed it. We love what God hates. We hate what God loves. And because of that, it's our natural tendency as sinners. We may not actively perceive it, but we do. We search for things other than God to give ourselves joy and to give, find meaning and pleasure and satisfaction. Our, 
Our sinful tendency, consciously or not, is basically to write God out of the script of our lives. And we become God's liturgy of our own lives. That's the natural tendency of our own hearts. I mean, we have really ugly hearts. And we, be, we see that as early, as early as Genesis 4, 3 and 4. We see it in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. They're building a tower that wants to reach the heavens. Why? Because Genesis 11, 4, let's, let's build this and make a name for ourselves. We love ourselves above all. That's what our sin does to us. It turns us in on ourselves. It turns us away from God. And so from the, from the beginning, the whole story of Scripture is God carrying out His good purposes in a world that hates Him and that is op- opposing Him and is opposing His good purpose in the world. That's the whole stream of Scripture. And in story after story, we see particular instances of that general truth. And we see it here in Acts chapter 12. Uh, We see it played out. This is one particular instance, but it's one particular instance of a thousand in Scripture, of God carrying out His good purpose and and the world doing all that it can to oppose that good purpose. So let's read the chapter, and I think you'll see what I mean. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were uh, guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. Thought he was seeing a vision. When when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. <laughs> and they went out and went along this one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she did not open the gate but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate they said to her you're out of your mind but she kept insisting that it was so but she they kept saying it's his angel but Peter continued knocking and when they opened they saw him and were amazed but mentioning to them with his hand to be silent he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison 
And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not, a, not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. As I prayed earlier, I pray again that you might, you might arrest our attention, capture our thoughts, bring them close into this word. May it be the only that we hear. Make it hard for us to be distracted. We pray. Your word deserves our attention and our allegiance. To give that to your word is to give it to you. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand it. Hearts to embrace it and love it. Wills to obey it. Please give me the help that I need to teach. And give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, I think in this chapter we can see uh, three different truths at play. They're somewhat related to each other. First, God's power cannot be contested. I, I might add a qualifier to that. God's power cannot be contested successfully. And you can contest it. You might not want to. Cannot be contested, at least successfully. I think we see this pictured for us in Peter's um, imprisonment. That we, you know, that, that, that was a crazy, uh, crazy thing. All right, secondly, uh, God's punishment cannot be avoided apart from repentance and faith in Christ. That's something we see in, in that story in verses 20 and 23 with the downfall and death of Herod. God's punishment cannot be avoided apart from repentance and faith in Christ. And then thirdly and finally, kind of the flip side of the first one, God's purpose cannot be frustrated. We see that in a single verse in verse 24 at the end of the chapter. God's purpose wins out, and it is foolish and folly to fight against it. So that's where we're going. Let's think first about the truth that God's power cannot be contested. Uh, as I said earlier, since the entrance of sin into the world, trying to give you that big picture, the overarching story of the Bible has been God accomplishing His purpose in a world, in space and time, in a sinful world that is hostile to Him, hostile to His purpose, and opposes Him and opposes His purpose with all its might. And the truth of that could not be displayed any clearer or better than here in this chapter. And in the opening verses of the chapter, where in verse 1, uh, we read that Herod the king 
laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. The NIV says he was intending to persecute them. Laid violent hands. Just FYI, this Herod the king is the grandson of Herod the Great who uh, was king when Jesus was born and came into the world. And when he put all the, the, the children two years old and younger to death, that was this guy's grandfather. Uh, this is Herod the king, uh, grandson of Herod the Great. All right? So he laid violent hands on the church. And, uh, and, and still without telling us why, we're told in verse 2 that he killed James, the brother of John. This is not the James that wrote the James of our Bible. This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. This is the James and John who, in Matthew 4, they left their fishing nets and their father to follow Jesus. This is that James. And uh, he had been a leader in the church there, and, um, and, J- and, and Herod knew it. And so he put together, I mean, put to death uh, James. You know, Jesus had told James back in Matthew 20 that he was going to pay a high price for following him. And um, that came to pass here. And uh, we get a glimpse in verse 3 of what maybe motivated him. Uh, in verse 3 it says that he saw that what he did pleased the Jews. And he saw that doing things like this would win him the praise and approval of men. And our sinful natures are thirsty for praise and approval. And we need to know that we want people to make much of us. And, and we have the, the capability and tendency, if left unchecked, to do almost anything, at, or at least things we know are wrong, to, to get it. I see that tendency even in my own children. We don't ever really grow out of it. Herod murdered to get it. And when he got the praise and approval that, that he wanted from the Jews, from what he did to James, it drove him away from repentance and motivated him to do it again. So verse 3 tells us that, uh, in verse 3, he, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. He wanted to do the same thing to Peter that he had just done to James. But in God's providence, all of this happened during Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. So for that reason, they couldn't do anything to Peter immediately. So they locked him up for a little while, intending to carry out this plan after Passover, Passover was over. And because Herod was so bent on carrying out his plan of opposition against the church and was so insatiable for more praise and adulation from the Jews that when he locked Peter up, he locked Peter up. I mean, look, the description of of it sounds like this. He had a squad of four soldiers, four different squads of four soldiers, for three-hour shifts during the four-hour watch of the night, standing outside the prison area. That's 16 soldiers just for the outside of the prison. In addition to those keeping watch outside, you had Peter chained up hands and feet between two soldiers and more soldiers just outside the door. I mean, in Herod's mind, Peter wasn't going anywhere. It kind of reminds you of... um, It reminded me of when, when they murdered Jesus they crucified him and when they buried him in the tomb do you remember the description at the end of Matthew's gospel of that uh you know you can just listen or you can turn there in Matthew uh 26 excuse me in Matthew 27 
uh, beginning in verse 62, after they crucified Jesus, it said, Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud would be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made a tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Well, it didn't work out for them very well then. They're trying to do the same here with tons and tons of soldiers. But the Lord's... Well, and you think about... You think about the Proverbs. There's a proverb that says in Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And you see that. The Lord's power cannot be contested successfully. That's definitely what is being put on display as this story continues. Herod used the full extent of his power and his authority and resources to keep Peter under lock and key. But in the middle of the night, the Lord sent an angel to Peter. Angels are sent to carry out the will of the Lord and are given the power necessary to do whatever the Lord sends them to do. And in this case, uh, the, the purpose was to cause Peter's chains simply to fall off. Not only that, but obviously, he caused all of those guards to be temporarily blinded or just unaware, deafened to what was happening right in front of their face or walking right by them. He had to get up and just walk right by these guys and walk out the door. You got doors opening up of their own accord. Have any of you ever heard, uh, it reminds me of Ilza West's testimony. You ever heard Ilza West's testimony in this church? I, need to, I, I really need to get her to come tell that. But um, she, as a little girl, they, her family was in a concentration camp uh, during World War II and in the years right after, um, under the Germans and under the Russians. And she tells a story about an instance where the, they were about to take her brother away. And they, they had all this this line of men that they were about to march off and they were surely going to die. And her older brother was one of them in that line. And Ilza's father clearly heard the impression of the Lord saying, your son's place is by your side. So her father literally just walked in front of all of those guards and grabbed her brother and walked back. And not a guard said a thing, you know. Just, it was almost like that. Just they were, the Lord just deluded them for a moment. They didn't see what was happening. It's kind of what was happening here. That reminds me a lot of what was going on with Peter. When he, when he, and when he leaves the prison, the angel leads him all out of, the way out of town. The gates are just opening up all by themselves. And I'll add this too. The fact, we talk about how the, the guards and everybody was temporarily deluded. Sounds like Peter was too for a moment. He thought all of this was a dream. All of it was a vision. He had just received a vision in chapter 10, so he kind of knew what that felt like. I think this um, is a display of the Lord's power, and I think that was that that Peter felt like that was by God's design. I think if if he had been completely alert and in his right mind, he might have acted differently. I mean, he might have freaked out. I would have. This was clearly a display of the Lord's power, and there was nothing that 
that Herod could do to stop it. And just as a, a practical point for us, that I think is a, a practical point of this chapter, what, what, do, you do, what do you do with this, this truth that the Lord's power cannot be contested successfully? What do you do with that? That I think that the encouragement of this chapter, and for us this morning, is that this should be an incredible encouragement to pray. And to pray boldly. Right? We see all of these believers gathered together in Mary's house in verse 12. And clearly that, that's what they were doing. They believed this about the Lord. So they were, they were together making earnest prayer to the Lord. And clearly they wanted to believe that the Lord could intervene in Peter's situation. But sadly in their heart of hearts, obviously they, they didn't really expect the Lord to, to come in answer to their prayers. I say, I say that because when Peter actually shows up, they don't believe it's really him. They actually mock the servant girl. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. They're, they're literally sitting there praying that the Lord would free Peter. And when somebody says, Peter's free, they go, you're out of your mind. Can we really say anything? If we're honest, if I'm honest. That often describes my expectations when I pray. Uh, it's true of me more than I'd like to admit. But go for it. That's awesome. That's it. That is. Praise God for that. And Seth's a good man <laughs> today. Um, so I think one of, this, one of the reasons that this story, one reason this story has been passed down to us is, is to show us that it's not futile to pray and ask God for great things. To, to ask God that he might do things that from our limited vantage point, we don't see a way that it could happen. I mean, when you, when you, if you were there and you knew that Peter had been chained that many times to that many soldiers, both inside and outside, would you really think that that very night he would just walk out of there? But they prayed and he literally did that. Like, what is to prevent us? What is to prevent us from praying for things that we literally cannot imagine a way that it could happen? Or even if we could imagine a way, we think, that, that would never happen. That doesn't say anything. What, that, that, that testifies a lot. What does that say about the Lord? What does it say about what we believe about the Lord? What does it say about us, our little faith? 
right? But really and truly, this passage teaches us that when it is God's purpose, nothing is impossible. Herod really thought that he had things under control. But the Lord's power made it seem weak and futile. The chains just fell off. The doors just opened. They're there, but they don't see. They're there, but they don't hear. The Lord's power cannot be contested successfully. We need to know that and believe it deep down in our hearts and minds and live like it. He created this world. He spoke and it came to be. That's the world we live in. We don't live in a purely naturalistic world. As the old hymn says, this is my father's world. We pray. We pray confidently. So God's power cannot be contested contested successfully. But the next truth in here is God's punishment cannot be avoided apart from repentance and faith in Christ. We've already noted Herod's pride. He loved the praise and adulation of other people. It consumed him. And this story heaps example after example of it. For one thing, he woke up the next morning and Peter was gone. <laughs> and his pride, instead of, instead of realizing that something really remarkable had happened, he chose not to believe that, chose to be angry at the guards and put them to death <laughs> to commit a greater sin. He really felt he was above consequences. In his pride, he felt like he could do anything that he wanted wouldn't but in the height of his pride is in, in this seemingly side story that that begins in verse 20 look there again let's read verses 20 through 22 again now herod was angry with the people of tyre and sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded blastus the king's chamberlain they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country uh their their country depended on the king's country for food for food on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So this, this little side story, seemingly, um, indicates that the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon were under his control, under his rule. And for reasons we're not told, he is angry with them, so angry he's withholding food from them. When, when we think we have, I mean, we see wicked, wicked rulers today. They've always been. There's a man who was withholding food from people on, because he was angry at them for the reason we're not told. And in order to gain his favor, they throw, those people come and they throw a, a banquet for him to honor him, um, to try to get food. And the passage says he puts on his royal robes, the ancient um, Jewish historian Josephus talks about this. Uh, talks about the robe he wore that day, and he said Josephus said that that entire robe was overlaid with silver. And he said that the Josephus tells us that the banquet was held in the morning hours, so that when the when the sun rose, it would shine on that robe with awesome splendor. And the climax of the story, you know, is when Herod delivers an oration, a, a speech, and the people begin to shout and say, he's a God, he's not a man, he's a God. Look again at verse 22, that's what they say, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, Luke is writing Acts. He knows what he's doing. He knows that after he tells this story, he's about to tell another story. So to just put this 
in perspective, turn over really quickly, hold your place, just turn over to chapter 14. And here we see another very similar story happened to Paul and Barnabas in Lystra during their first missionary journey. The Lord had healed a man uh, through Paul. And look, beginning in verse 11, we'll read through verse 13. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance of the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They, they here, like Herod, were called gods by the people. They even wanted to sacrifice to them. But what do Paul and Barnabas do? Look at verses 14 and 15. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are, are men of nature like you, of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now turn back to chapter 12. When you compare that story to the one here, we're not given any indication that Herod deflected the praise. And gave glory to God instead like Paul and Barnabas had done. Now he, he rather believed what they were saying. And he liked to believe that about himself. In fact we're specifically told in verse 23 that he did not. He did not give glory. The glory to God. So Herod's pride was in full blaze. But the Lord would not allow that to go unpunished. So verse 23 says that the punishment was swift. It says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by a worm. Again, Josephus, the historian, adds that it took him five days to die, and it was tapeworm. So the point of the whole episode is that the Lord's punishment cannot be avoided. Repentance and humility before God is always the way to go. We know these things, and the Lord has left us these things that we might give him the glory that he is due. We might be quick to repent when we see the same pride creeping up in our own heart. We love to be made much of. Don't think we're that far from Herod. The last purpose I want to see very quickly, very quickly, is God's purpose cannot be frustrated. That's how this whole story ends. I just want to point out a bit of irony here. We're told in verse 24 that the word of God increased and multiplied. I just think it's an in intentional irony that in verse 23, Herod's word is silenced. And in verse 24, God's word increased and is still increasing today. So Herod's mission from beginning to end was to silence Christians, put an end to them. He killed James. He wanted to do the same thing to Peter. But in the end, the Lord put him to death and accomplished his purpose anyway. It's good to be on the side of the Lord in Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Praise the Lord, let's pray.